Hello and welcome. Right, hang on. I've got the wrong fucking. <sighs> Sorry. What a twat. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Double Reel, the monthly podcast magazine that gives film nerds their regular fix of cinematic content to get them through their day. It's May 2021 and you're probably getting ready for your first trip back to the cinema, and there should be plenty of material in this episode to get you in the mood. My name's James Adamson and I'm an ordinary member of the public with no standing in the media or the film industry. What I do have is a geeky love of film and obscure stories from the world of cinema and a lot of opinions. Joining me on the podcast is my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome, James. Uh, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, happy to be here. Let's get into it. Each month, we aim to bring you a range of features from the film world split into two reels for those of you who'd like to take an intermission between installments of film content. If you want to comment on the podcast or with your thoughts on the world of cinema generally, you can reach us on Twitter on at filmanorak 73 or search for Double Real Film Podcast, which should take you to our profile. There's also an Instagram called Double Real Podcast and a Double Real Podcast Facebook page for you to follow if you're that way inclined. Here's what's coming up in episode 13. First up, there's a roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds with some film news, a look at how we're living up to our film-related resolutions for 2021, and a look at some of the notable films we watched since the last episode. Then it's time for Classics and Recommended, where we try and get away from our endless diet of TV repeats and instead get round to something from our backlog of great films we haven't seen yet. This month, we're changing it up a little and giving you something you need to add to your watch list. The wonderful modern French classic, Into Chablis. Our hidden gem feature draws your attention to a lesser-known film that deserves a wider audience, which this month is Tom Hooper and Peter Morgan's Brian Clough drama, The Damned United. Then we turn to the one that got away and look at a tall tale of a potentially great film a top director tried and failed to bring to the big screen. For episode 13, we're discussing one of the true giants of film, David Lean and Nostromo, the film he was trying to complete before he died. We close the first reel of this episode with the remake Hate Watch, which this month looks at The Upside, the English-language remake of our classic feature, Into Chablis. After a brief intermission, the second reel of this episode will feature The Big Conversation, in which the Adamsons tackle a topic from the film world in more detail. In episode 13, we're sharing our lists of five films that changed our lives. But first, some messages from listeners, aka the podcast magazine letters page. People have been responding on the socials to some of the films and features we're doing this month. On The Damned United, Paul says it's an excellent movie and Ashley agrees. Quite a lot of chat about Into Chablis and its remake, The Upside. Bruce says the remake is good, but the original is superb. Omar Sy is one of my favourite actors. For more of him, I recommend the series Lupin. Yes, Bruce, 100% agree about Lupin, although less so about whether The Upside is good. Jazz says the original is one of my favourite ever films, Beautiful Story. Zayas says, I haven't seen Into Chablis, but I really like The Upside. I'm disabled myself and felt like I could really relate to it. Well, fair enough. To be honest, no one on the social said anything particularly scathing to say about the remake, which we'll just have to agree to disagree on. A few picked up on the Starman feature I'm doing this month. Uh, Riku says, I love John Carpenter and waited in line to see this in the movie theatre, and the showing was cancelled. In the end, I had to wait for it to be shown on TV. Paul W. says, I'm not a fan of this one. It's one of John Carpenter's weaker efforts. Well, Paul, I will try and change your mind. And some people have responded with their own lists of movies that changed their lives. As you can imagine, there's a fair bit of Star Wars, Spielberg, a little bit of Marvel. Common themes are the first film people ever saw, the experience they had watching it that was personal to them, or how the uh, films influenced what was going on in their lives at the time. Tasha, who has responded before on other things uh, on other podcasts, says, great question, but I don't think I could use, choose just five. And a friend of the pod, Mickey V, responded to the last episode in our discussion of Seven Samurai. If James the Younger, that's you I think, mate, wants to give Kurosawa a second chance, Yojimbo is a much shorter and more recognisably modern film 
and Mifune is properly badass in it. Thanks, Mickey V. I, I hope that uh, I hope that advice hits home. Thanks for all your messages and comments. They're much appreciated. Now on with the podcast. Now for our monthly roundup of a month in the life of two busy film nerds. We look at any major film news that's breaking this month, how we've been getting on fitting in movie watching with our busy, exciting lives. As well as that, at the start of the year, we made some film-related New Year's resolutions for 2021, and we'll be checking in on whether we've managed to keep them up. So in terms of news, uh, what caught your The Oscars happened. That's true. Um, not the only surprise I really saw was Hopkins winning Best Actor. I don't think anyone expected. I don't that. fucking care to be honest. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's not been a particularly inspiring kind of year. No, I mean the the ceremony was so low key, and it, it just feels weird and unnatural. Though none of these none of these films got shown in the cinema, and I know that's no one's fault. Last year was last year, but it just feels like the Oscar. Everyone they've almost voted for their own films without the audience having uh, any say. Yeah, I mean I watched. Uh, in terms of my resolutions and kind of relating to the Oscars, I watched The Sound of Metal, which was actually really good. Yeah, I watched um, that too. I thought it was terrific. The sound was very good. Rizam had put in a very good performance. Um, I haven't seen Maureen's Black Bottom. I haven't seen... What was the one that uh, Anthony Hopkins won for? The Father? Or Father? The Father. No, um, I didn't see that either. But yeah... The- Did you see how they must have been expecting... Um, uh, Chadwick Boseman to win Best Actor because they changed the schedule around to make Best Actor the last award of the night because normally it's Best Picture as the last award of the night and the only people are assuming that they thought Chadwick Boseman was going to win and because it's a posthumous win they could do the whole thing as a bit of a tribute to him but the voters had other ideas. There was a lot of outcry which kind of annoyed me because it's like because he passed away he's there for his performance is just going to get an Oscar which is not how, how the thing works. Um, yeah, I mean, it, look, it's just one of those things. The, the, I think we, you know, we, we've mentioned it before. The, the Oscars, a lot, often a lot of sentimentality or, or whatever's going on in their minds at the time has a lot, you know, a lot more to do with their vote than what's actually the best film. Yeah. There you go. Um, various, various snubs. I think Leslie Odom Jr. He might have had a hope for best song, but you know, who won best song in the end? Oh, I don't even remember. Nothing that particularly. Uh, no, I think eye. I've not seen Judas in the Black Messiah, but you've seen Judas in the Black Messiah and One Night in Miami, and I think Leslie Odom Jr.'s performance of Sam Cooke was incredible. I've been listening to the soundtrack of that, like a couple of songs from it. You know his um, his rendition of Chain Gang and Changing to Come, and it's it's incredible. He, he doesn't sound fully like Sam Cooke, but he's he's got the essence of his you know character and the feelings that yeah. Sam Cooke had at that time. And I think that film kind of got overlooked because. Um, a Chadwick Boseman passed away. That, that, that sounds horrible, but just because someone passed away doesn't mean they're automatically guaranteed an Oscar. And I feel that's what this entire Oscars, the entire Oscars were geared. At. And if and if Anthony Hopkins had the best performance of the year, then fair play to him; he deserves it. Um, yeah, look, I, I don't know about that. I mean, it's um, yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah. I mean, I thought Daniel Kaluuya was absolutely yeah. terrific as um, uh, Fred Hampton. It, it's weird. It, it felt like more of a, a best. Actor leading performance rather than supporting yeah, the was, and also supporting. Lakeith Stanfield was nominated sure in the same category for the same film. <coughs> so who was the actual lead actor in yeah, this it, film? They, according to the according to the Oscars, nobody. Strange. I mean, you get that sometimes, and it's just one of those things. I thought Judas and the Black Messiah, like I mentioned last month, wasn't as good as the story yeah. it was telling. Um, you know, I mean, you know, the difference between 
you know, um, Spike Lee doing Black Clansman or Malcolm X or um, uh, Steve McQueen doing 12 Years a Slave. It's a, a, a great and powerful story that people need to see, but it's also really brilliantly done. And I thought Judas and the Black Messiah was only okay. So yeah. um, just one of those things. Um, other than that, I mean, there's been other awards-related stories that are really, really negative. I mean, the awards uh, ceremonies have been really under the microscope the past couple of months. I mean, I, I suppose you saw the stories about Noel Clark. Oh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a prick. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, just, yeah. it's one of those things where... <laughs> he's a prick. Yeah, it's one of those things where you need to kind of, on the one hand, you would say... Well, nothing's proven. These are just allegations. On the other hand, it's a bloody hell of a lot of allegations. I mean, that will play out however it plays out. I think the thing that people have, have worried about in terms of the BAFTAs is it seems to have come out that BAFTA knew about the allegations two weeks beforehand and still gave him the his Lifetime Contribution Award, which has put a lot of people's backs up. And it's just weird that they didn't just say, you know, why don't we just quietly yeah. shelve this? Uh, um, the Golden Globes have been cancelled. Um They've been absolutely kicked about. NBC aren't shown the next year. Tom Cruise has handed back all three of his awards in you know, protest. You know, it says a lot when Tom on. Cruise is, you know, speaking out because he's a very weird kind of guy for that because he puts on that kind of facade of being a really nice guy, but we all know he's mental. But you know, it's a big deal when Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise doesn't really get involved. He yeah. tends not to get in. He tend yeah, he just tends not to get involved, does he? But he's mm. certainly not. You know, he's, he's stuck his neck out on this one. Um, Fair play, I know Scarlett Johansson's, you know, said she's been asking pretty sexist questions by the Hollywood Foreign Press. Um, it's just kind of mental, man. It's, to me, I don't know if I just see this from a very kind of lateral black and white view, but surely these things should just be award ceremonies. We give you awards, and if we're yeah. doing an interview, we ask you about your film. We don't ask you sexist questions. Like, cause I've seen I've seen these questions that Scotty Hansen's been asked. You'll be there with like Jeremy Redder. Jeremy Redder is looking kind of awkward. I think it must have been for um, one of the the Marvel films. And she gets asked about how yeah. tight her outfit is and stuff like that. And she's like, "Well, do you ask do you ask anyone else these questions? Or are you only going to ask me?" I don't know if that was necessarily the Hollywood Foreign Press, but the, I suppose the, the kind of point still stands is that these yeah. award ceremonies should be. This was the best film of the year. This was the best actor of the year. This there's year. a beautiful irony to Jeremy Renner being involved in all that because have you heard of like the Hawkeye Project? Yeah. The Hawkeye Project is this bit where people go back over old comic books, and I think it's older ones more than newer ones. And what they do is they take poses and pictures involving female comic book characters and superheroes, yeah, yeah? and then they redo them with Hawkeye. Right. And it looks really funny because basically, um, you know, Black Panther or not, sorry, Black Widow or, you know, one one of these other female characters, the Zatanna or any other female character, they've always got their ass stuck out and they've always looking like a bit of a sex kitten. And uh, and uh, showing Hawkeye looking like that is really amusing. And they just picked Hawkeye really randomly. Look it yeah. up, it's really funny. Basically, they've drawn Hawkeye as if to just show the difference between how they draw female characters and male characters. So it's quite ironic that that's spilled over into real life, that Jeremy Renner's standing yeah, there just watching the female character getting the different treatment. Like, e. I mean, the other stuff that's gone on with the Golden Globes is pretty... I mean, they haven't got a leg to stand on the fact that they've got no black members. Um, the other stuff that's gone on, there seems to be allegations of corruption of financial mismanagement. I've got no idea if any of them are true, but some things that have definitely been happened is the um, there are, they only have 87 voters in total on the Golden Globes. Those are the people who hand out all the awards for all, all the categories, whereas the Academy has 10,000 right. voters. Um, all those 87 voters are just journalists, some of whom are film journalists with genuine um, uh, 
like credentials in the film industry. Some of them are just columnists. There's like an ex beauty queen, an ex wrestler, and none of them have got anything. To, you know, these people have got you know nothing to suggest. They know the first thing about films, and they're constantly being taken on like all expenses paid, free trips. Like there was one last year where they're all being sent on free trips to visit Emily in Paris, and obviously, who who would turn down a free trip to Paris? And then, amazingly, Emily in Paris gets lots of nominations for the Golden Globes. Because, oh, well, I, that didn't hurt being put up in a five-star hotel, you know, overlooking the Eiffel Tower, did it? And it just seems like, you know, I know all awards are a bit kind of, you know, all, they're all a bit preposterous. But at least at least try and, and, like, have some sort of standards around how you run your show, you know? I mean, on, on face value, that does look kind of you know, wrong and dodgy. Um, obviously, if you're wanting... I mean, nobody takes the Golden Globes as seriously as the Oscars, but 87 members giving out nominations and awards because they got a trip to Paris to, you know, all expenses paid to go and review a film. That doesn't look great on on the, the face of things. Um, but, yes, yeah, stuff like sexist questions, only 87 members and they're all white, um, is a bit... is a bit ropey. I mean, we've discussed this before. I think the best person for the job should be the best person for the job. Uh, regardless of skin color, but it's not great for representation when there's 87 white people going on all expenses trips to Paris and things like that. Yeah, I mean the fact is, you're sitting there and going, have we, you know, having a quota system is is not what you want. But if you if you are if you're hiring the best person for the job across an industry, what you know, having no white, you know, no women and or hardly any women and, and no non-white people suggests that you aren't giving the best the job to the best yeah, people. Exactly. So yeah, but they they've obviously they've been given a massive kicking. Whether they're you know whether they're as bad as they're being painted, uh, it should spur them into action, and maybe they'll be a bit better next year. We'll see. Um, other than that, there's some film news that might actually be quite fun. We've talked a couple of times, mate, haven't we? You've made the point, and I agree, that rather than make James Bond a woman, why not come up with a new excellent action spy franchise with a female um, female mm. lead? Uh, and it looks like we're getting that. Gal Gadot is going to be in a film called Heart of Stone, okay. which is intended to be an action spy franchise to rival James Bond and Mission Impossible, but with a female lead character. So... Um, Hopefully that will be very good. Um, Netflix are behind it. Hopefully that means it'll have decent resources. It's being co-written by the guy who did uh, Charlize Theron's Old Guard film, so hopefully that should make it quite lively. So um, that sounds like good, good stuff, exciting. But you know, we'll probably have to wait to see it. Okay. No. Um, be interesting. I do like Gal Gadot. I think she's a reliable kind of leading lady, especially for that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll see. But um, you know. Any other news that um, caught your eye? Not really, no. Um, I think after the Oscars, everything kind of goes quiet for a couple of weeks. Just Yeah. I mean, the, the other news really is that, you know, in a few days as we're recording, but, you know, after, you know, at, at, at the time this goes out, it'll be live, uh, the cinemas are going right, to be open okay. again. Yeah. What's on? What's um, going to be on in the cinema? Well, I mean, this is the UK, so I don't you know quite what's happening in other areas, but in the UK, the cinemas are allowed to reopen on May the 17th. This uh, episode will be uploaded and, and published on May the 18th, so people are probably already looking around as we speak to try and book something. Um, my local cine worlds aren't showing, any, uh, aren't showing any bookings yet, so I don't know what they're going to be showing. I feel like they're missing a trick. Uh, I've got an Odeon near me that is showing... Um, the problem with some of them is that some of the films that are on I've already seen. I mean, I paid to watch Judas and the Black Messiah. I'm not going to pay to watch it again. Um, Godzilla vs. Kong. I'm not sure if I even fancy that, to be honest. 
Um, and the, some of the some of the films that have been like Nomadland and other things, the Oscar films. So we'll see if the, any of them sort of catch my catch my fancy. Um, but yeah, I think the problem is there's not really been that much to show. So maybe they'll mix it up with some you know some good stuff from last year that we'd have liked to see on the big screen. You know? Yeah. Um, I've just tried to look up. I'd say my local. There's a really good cine world in Glasgow on Renfrew Street. Um, and it, they're just kind of coming up with this Cine World Cinema is temporarily closed. Please check back soon. That's a really good cinema, by the way. Anyone who's ever in Glasgow passing through, they've got uh, that VIP thing. So you pay yeah. thirty quid and you get unlimited drinks, food. You get a, you get an all you can eat buffet before, and then you get unlimited snacks, popcorn, hot dogs, nachos, unlimited drinks, and reclining, um, big comfortable seats in the. Uh, in the cinema screen for 30 quid, so it's like your perfect kind of date night. It's a really, really good screen. Um, just shout out, because I've had my problems with Cineworld in the past, as you will know, um, but it's actually a really yeah. good cinema to go to. Um, yeah, it seems to be just been a, a, a head office decision by Cineworld to not, sh- you know, um, publish their showings yet, so we'll just, you know, have to wait for that. Um I've you know I've got a more independent one, and every man near me that's showing mostly stuff I've either seen or don't want to see. But you know I, I want to book something at the cinema soon, as soon as I can get in there. Yeah, I'm know? not sure if the rules are different up here in Scotland because nothing's <coughs> coming up on the Cine World website. Yeah, yeah, same for me. Oh wait, no, here, there we so. go. Godzilla vs um, Kong, yeah. Judas and the Black Messiah, Maya the Bee, Mortal Kombat, My New York Year, Peter Rabbit Two, Spiral from the Book of Saw, Ugh. The Unholy. Yeah, Peter Rabbit too. Those who wish me a James Corden can fuck off. Um, the Conjuring, the Devil made me do it. Cool. So shite. Um, yeah, at the moment, I'd not particularly. I do know that Minari is on at one of the cinemas near me, which was Oscar nominated, and it's got Glenn from The Walking Dead in, and that's had good reviews. So I might, I might actually make that the best film supporting I actress. Uh, I can't remember her name, but it did win best supporting actress. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, there are films to start being seen, and I think we'll probably, in hopefully in the roundup, we'll actually be able to start talking about films we've seen at the cinema as part of our roundup next month or going forward, which hopefully. would be nice. that'd be good. So, in terms of resolutions and, you know, films you've watched this month, what, how did you do on your resolution, a balance between TV um, and film? So, I've just started watching Rocky Man, but I had to put it on pause to record this. It's all right. Quite enjoying it. Um... Mm-hmm. In terms of shite that I just kind of stuck on, The Hangover Part Two. It's a really bad film. Um, yeah, I watched The Highwayman. Well, the one with Woody Harrelson yeah, and Kevin quite Costner. Good. Uh, I love what it. What do you think of that? A good history, history film. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was all right. It's basically the flip side story yeah, of Bonnie and Clyde, isn't it? So you could watch the Faye Dunaway, Warren Beatty, Bonnie and Clyde, and then watch well, this, and yeah. it's about the old guys they so brought they, in. To there's try still and catch kind of them. that romanticism that they had towards Bonnie and Clyde, but they kind of see it from the other perspective of, you know, they, they shot innocent yeah. people who, you know, during the Great Depression, where people were now on the breadline, well, just after the Great Depression, but you get what I mean. Um, yeah. I watched that Mosul produced by uh, the Russo brothers, um, set in, obviously, yeah. Mosul in, in Iraq, um, about the kind of elite. Iraqi SWAT team uh, taking, you know, on ISIS people leaving, um, trying to leave the city. Quite interesting. Watch Snatch again, because Snatch is always a good watch. Um, anything else? Yeah, that's just what's on my Netflix, but nothing properly springs to mind. Oh, I, I did watch Godzilla vs. Kong. Uh, and what did you think of that? Like, 
it's it's all right. It's just like if you want something shite to stick on in the background, fine. It'll be a perfect film to have when it comes onto Netflix and Sky and Amazon, whatever. One of those films where you, you just you know it's shite on in the background. But I would res- I would have resented going to the cinema to see it. You know what I mean? That's exact. Sounds exactly like my review of Kong Skull Island yeah. when that came out. I, I I made almost that exact noise when it was yeah. finished. Like, yeah. <sighs> it was okay. Yeah. All right, but you managed to see a few things, which is good. You managed to get a few things under yeah, your belt. Yeah, I think that was it. Um, Probably watched another Star Wars. So for me, uh, yeah, yeah, always. Yeah, so for me, one of my resolutions was to watch like an old classic that I've not seen in years. And the one I managed, the one I watched this month was Color of Money, which is the Martin Scorsese directed uh, film starring Paul Newman and Tom Cruise. I don't know if you've seen that, James. Which one's that again? It's the sequel to The Hustler. Basically, Paul Newman is a former pool shark. He's an aging guy. He's got one foot in that world, but he's not really a player yeah. anymore. Uh, and he finds a young guy. He's, he's still connected to them because you know he put he's he's made his made some money in business and he puts up stake money, bet money for actual pool sharks. There's a lot of money on betting okay. on pool games, so he knows who the players are. And this young guy turns up, who's a phenomenal talent, but hasn't got a clue. Right. And that's Tom Cruise. And he sees this as his opportunity to kind of get some redemption because things weren't really bad for him in the previous film, The Hustler. And his opportunity for redemption is to have some success where he, you know, his life fell apart last time and also see a young, talented guy kind of get the guidance that he never got. Do you know what I mean? Um, so it's basically about this world of pool sharks, you know, where it's actually quite quite grimy and underworld and you can get beaten up. There's some quite, you know, dodgy characters involved in it sort of an urban environment that you can imagine Martin Scorsese directing very well. Uh, And Paul Newman actually won an Oscar for his performance. This was kind of him kind of having one last big swing, uh, a big acting performance, you know, and Tom Cruise holds his own quite well as well. Um, Generally good performances. Mary Mary Elizabeth Mastrantoni was in it as well. And Paul uh, Scorsese manages to film the pool matches in a really exciting way, which you might not think is possible, but he manages it. It's kind of, quite light compared to a lot of Scorsese films, but it, it comes in quite an interesting period in the mid-80s when he was off doing different stuff. The film he did before this was After Hours, and the film he did after this was Last Temptation of Christ. So he was off doing some different stuff. It's 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 definitely worth okay. a watch. I'm not sure how it plays to a modern audience. It's something I really liked at the time. Do you know what I mean? <coughs> the interesting thing about it is they basically stole the entire plot of Kingpin for this right. film. You know, the 10-pin bowling thing with Woody Harrelson. That's basically the same right, Okay. It's, yeah, it's, it's all right. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. Um, so that was my, one of my resolutions. Other films I watched this month, watched uh, one, well, we mentioned Sound of Metal, which I really enjoyed. Uh, watched Wonder Woman 84 um, because I, I got it on Blu-ray for my birthday and we said, okay, let's watch the film I got for my birthday. Uh, it's not very good. I, I echo all of your criticisms of it. It just, it just goes to show that when DC gets it right, like they did with the first Wonder Woman film, that's the exception rather than the rule because they just always get it wrong. Apart from that, the tone of it, the tone of the film is just completely all over the place and really crude and cartoonish. So they've pissed everybody off. They've pissed a lot of like male viewers off. Going, all right, I get you want to do the era of there was a lot of harassment and like dodgy attitudes back then, but really you've gone a bit over the top. But then the flip side is a lot of women watched that and went, well, that's fucking stupid and cartoonish. There's a, a Latino character that's pissed everyone off because he's all the worst stereotypes rolled into one. It's just, um, I don't know, one minute it's being really zany, then it tries to have a bit of a dark tone, the CGI is crap. Oh, what a mess. What a, they just, 
it's just DC, man. They can't get it right. Yeah, I, I did like Pedro Pascal, though. I do like Pedro Pascal. He, he was all right, you know. He's 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 he always does his best and he always gives a good performance. But I mean, a lot of Latino people watched that and went, well, you know, it's like they they feel like that could, you know, if you had a, it's the equivalent of like a really kind of uh, over the top, you know, stereotypical black character as far as they're concerned. So while Pedro Pascal was good, well, all, all the actors I like. I mean, I like Kirsten Wig in the right thing, and I really like Gal Gadot. But this didn't, she, just, didn't Kristen Wig's character look like she was an extra from Cat? Yes, they just, I don't know what they did. The CGI was appalling. It's just, and, and again, the main thing is, why does Chris Pine's character have to be uh, in someone else's body? It's a magic wishing stone that can do pretty much everything else, but th- this has to happen in someone else's body and raise some really big ethical issues about that guy's in some complete random bloke. Uh, I don't know what they what they were thinking. I've already talked about it more than I want to. It's crap. Um, apart from that, as I mentioned on the socials, um, Someone got in touch, uh, his name, I'm going to get this right, has basically directed his own kind of very low-budget, micro-budget, independent uh, film uh, uh, called Who's With Me? And he's got an Instagram, uh, which I've linked to on the socials, and he's basically made a film with whatever resources he could get available uh, and is now just trying to get people to watch it. And it's uh, it's available to watch for free on YouTube. The link's on our – if you look on our Instagram, you'll find the link. The writer and director, Austin Allen James, he works in the film industry. He's a production assistant, assistant director, does various jobs that I, I've seen in the credits but don't entirely understand. Um, this is his attempt to kind of, you know, make it himself as a writer-director. Um so I, I thought I'd watch it and talk about it briefly on the on the pod. Uh, what I'd say is you have to like horror. I think you have to like kind of those mysterious films. And it's a very, very small-scale film. It takes place inside one apartment. There's one main actor that you see. There's another main actor that you only hear through the wall. And then there's a lot of hints about what's happening outside. But his apartment has been quarantined. There seems to be some problem with air quality that's actually toxic. And they're trapped inside. And every now and again, they get a new message about, you know, whether they're going to be rescued or what's going to happen. And they're stuck there trying to stave off boredom and going mad and, and think about whether to to break out of the uh, break out of the building. Um, the things I liked about the film were that there was some quite, there was quite in, some interesting shots. It's, you know, considering you've just got a camera and a guide, I thought there was some interesting, uh, you know, editing and style it was, you know, wor- worth watching for that. I thought it was you got the whole the whole film. You're going, what's really going on? What's happening? And it kind of keeps that mystery going, and that was quite good. And all the problems with the film, I think, are just the fact that they only had about two pounds to make the whole film. And I'm not sure I want to kind of criticise them for that. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But I would say, if you if you like one of these films, it's basically uh, uh, like a, almost like a single, a one and a half person, you know, like very closed set, and it's it's an hour and twelve minutes. You might find it entertaining if you like that kind of genre. Um, and I, you know, I'm happy to kind of call out Austin Allen James's name and say that here is someone who's used the resources he's had to make a film that's free for you to watch right now, uh, and you might just find quite entertaining and intriguing. Um, you, I mean, I could sit here and go a lot, you know, it, it's not not much happens and it, it looks really cheap, but that seems really harsh on a film that's tried to do something and entertain us with with very few resources. So uh, hats off, and I, I think it's you know. For, the, for people who like that genre, it might might just be worth a watch. It might just interest you. So, uh, good luck, Austin. I uh, hope you you know hope uh, hope this leads to better things. Right. I didn't really get a chance to watch it because I read the post about it the other day when I was at work, and this is the first bit of free time I've had since. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not a big horror fan, but um, no, I mean, fair play to anyone who's managing to do something creative, especially, you know, right now and, you know, with a limited budget and limited resources and, you know, have an interest in kind of anything, you know, have a create interesting shots. That's uh, fair play and I hope, you know, all the best. Yeah, there was some nice edits. I mean, there was some things that I sort of went, um, I don't really get that bit. What's happening on the screen? I would have liked to have seen a bit more attempting to get out more hints of danger, more hints of something sort of scary waiting outside. But I mean, the other thing is you should always review the film you watch, not the film you want to watch. And especially with the whole. Um, Yeah. So I'm very happy to give Austin and his film a shout out. That's who's with me. Look on our Instagram or search for it on, on YouTube. Say who's with me full feature. And you just, you can just watch the whole film. uh, And and remember that director's name. Cause I think uh, fair play to anyone who's putting something out there right now. One of my other resolutions was to make 2021 the year of the carpenter, uh, in which I pick 12 of my favorite John Carpenter films and watch one of them a month. I'm watching them in ascending order of how they're rated on IMDb. So as you go along, you might see some underrated classics, some interesting films, and you get towards the uh, the end of the year and you're getting some of his most well-known classics like Halloween and The Thing. Um, this month, I'm doing Starman from 1984. And um, just to say, before we get into it, obviously, like any feature on this magazine-style podcast, each of our features is quite short, doesn't give you all the detail. And the idea is that it's going to give you um, uh, an insight into the film, a taste of it, and maybe inspire you to, to watch the film yourself. And if you're as nerdy as me, hopefully inspires you to maybe look up further information about the film. If you want to look up further information on any John Carpenter film we've discussed on our podcast, I recommend uh, the Masters of Carpentry podcast. That's Masters of Carpentry uh, because each uh, each episode goes into great detail in each of these films. You'll find out all sorts of great stuff. It really gets you um, wanting to watch the next film on the list. Um, all, all the research on the podcast is done by one of the co-presenters, Noel Thingvall. Um, I'm going to link to his his Twitter and link to his, uh, his blog spot so you can see the episodes. If you're a John Carpenter fan, it's an absolute goldmine. Apart from that shout-out, Starman from 1984 – um, this was John Carpenter working his way back into the studio system after he got a bit of a kicking over the thing and being fired from Firestarter, which is still insane that he, that, that was bad for his career because it's his best film and one of the greatest horror movies of all time. Um, but anyway, he he, uh, he did a Christ- he did another Stephen King adaptation, Christine, uh, built his way back up. You know that film was a hit, and he picked up Starman. Um, it was a script that had been going around for a bit, and he decided to turn it into a John Carpenter style film. It's like a science fiction film, ostensibly. It's about a group of highly advanced aliens who are flying around the Earth because in the 70s we sent out the Voyager space probe, which said, here's us, here's what we're all about, come and visit. The first aliens that come and visit, everyone panics and shoots them down, right? It's just kind of about that, you know, Cold War paranoia. Um, so it means that one alien has kind of been shot down and has got to make his way across America to the, the rendezvous point. Um, the only way you can do that, because they're kind of not particularly physical beings, is to pick up the DNA of a dead guy uh, and, and basically turn himself into a, a version of that guy, which happens to be Jeff Bridges. Um, the problem is he does that in the house of his wife, who's, who just recently lost him in a car accident, so it blows her mind that suddenly her husband's standing there again, uh, but unable to talk properly because he's an alien and he's still working out how things are and, and getting into his body. And he makes her take him across country. So in the beginning, she's kind of been kidnapped, 
uh, as they go along, she kind of sees that he's really, you know, essentially very decent, very sweet in the way that he's still trying to learn the ways of of, uh, of the world and, and starts to be on his side. But they're being pursued by the government, which is a scientist who wants to study him, but also the army who wants to blow him out of the water, as it were. So you have a, a chase across the country, a road movie, and some quite touching and funny moments. Carol Allen, Allen is really sweet as the, the person who's kind of lost her, her, you know, she's really, she's really tough, but also you really identify because she's pretty, pretty vulnerable because she's lost her husband and now he's suddenly back in in another form. Um, but it's it's a really entertaining film. It's not typical John Carpenter, but it's really fun. Uh, it's almost like a, a road movie and a romantic comedy. It's really moving at times. It's also very exciting. There's some great ending. The music's terrific, as you'd expect in a John Carpenter film, although someone else did the score. Um, I definitely recommend watching this if you like that sort of, um, you know, there's a science fiction element to it, but also it's basically a fun road movie and a, such a good performance by Jeff Bridges that he was nominated for an Oscar. So I think that's a fair, uh, uh, a fair recommendation. Now, on the uh, on the strength of the fact that this is more of a road movie than a sci-fi movie, it inspired me to do an impromptu top 10 for this month, which is the top 10 uh, road movies. This is films that are predominantly just, uh, the story is about getting, you know, from one place to another, you know, traveling. I uh, don't mean action or heist films or car chase films like Mad Max, Baby Driver and the like. This is films where really it's about characters, you know, in some sort of buddy situation going across the country. So here's my top 10. It Happened One Night, Clockwise, Thelma and Louise, True Romance, Badlands, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, Midnight Run, Harry and Tonto, Paris, Texas and Itumama Tambien. As always, you take a, a very high-level genre like that and then stick 10 films in it. You get 10 very different films, so it's quite a diverse list for you. Uh, but hopefully that will inspire you to maybe watch something off that list as well as watching Starman. Next month, our Year of the Carpenter feature will be In the Mouth of Madness, which uh, I'm really looking forward to because that's a terrific film and not, not very well known. Uh, but that's everything I did this month. Anything else you did this month, James? Um, film-wise or just in general? You can do film-wise or in general. Entirely um, up to you. No. Nothing to do. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, we're all we're, we're all still locked up. Now for the classics and recommended feature, where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of these films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of great works, from Korean classic Lady Vengeance to cult classic The Blues Brothers. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations, including Wages of Fear, The Assassin, Spike Lee's 25th Hour, Departures, Short Bus, A Tale of Two Sisters, City of Lost Children, Under the Skin, Primer, Alphaville, Boyhood, The Constant Gardener, Into Chabla, and The French Connection. This month we're going to mix it up a bit because instead of something that James and I haven't watched, we're featuring a Stone Cold classic that we have watched, but you, the audience, need to put this at the top of your watch list immediately. You've given us plenty of great films to watch in your recommendations. This is us returning the favour. Your classics and recommended film to add to your watch list for episode 13 is Into Shabla. So, James, you told me about this film and, and got me to watch it in the first place. Uh, so you're the one who discovered this film. Um, would you like to walk us through a um, sort of a summary? Yeah, so when I did French at school, this film had just come out and won every César, which is the, the French Oscars. 
So, um, yeah, thought get, the teacher said it's getting a lot of rave reviews. And you know when you watch a film at school, it's nine times out of ten. It's shit. Unless it's RME, because yeah. our RME teacher just let us watch Shawshank Redemption and all that stuff. Um, yeah. So anyway, gave it a watch. It turns out it's possibly the funniest film I've certainly ever watched. It's it's very well written. It's very it's very well cast, and I think that lends itself both to the script and to the actors. It basically follows Omar Sy from Lupin fame and um, Jurassic World. He has a minor role, same in a. X-Men Days of Future Past, but this was the film that everyone started to know him from before he was in things like Lupin or Lupin. And it follows his character who's just out of jail. He's kind of just like a, you know, kind of waste of space. He's just, you know, he doesn't really do anything. He's been getting involved in the wrong crowd. He, um, he's trying to claim his benefits. So he has to get three signatures from um, different um, potential employers and he's got no interest in getting the job so his third his third interview he goes and uh, interviews to be like a full-time carer for a quadriplegic man who's a very rich invalid he's got an absurd amount of wealth that um in the film it basically says you can keep him alive till he's 70 even though he'd probably die at 50 because he's just very very rich and omar Sy's character um driss has got no interest in this he just wants his uh, signature so he can get the benefits Instead, he uh, he actually gets given the job um, by the rich invalid, and it just kind of follows, you know, the kind of brash, you know, doesn't give a shit attitude of Omar Sy's character to this kind of very wealthy guy who's trying to kind of, you know, adapt to his life, not adapt as much, but you know, you know, live his life as a quadriplegic when he used to be, you know, super rich. He's also the the rich guy. I can never remember his name. Has lost his um has lost. Philippe, Philippe, Philippe yeah. has lost his uh, his wife, who was you know everything to him, and he's just in a bit of a bad way. Um, and it just follows them, and you know it's about you know, the development of Omar Sy's character and also the development of um, Francois Cluzet. So it's the development of Dries and Philippe's relationship and their characters from yeah. just um, you know a guy out of jail who's got no interest in doing anything with his life. Um, you know he's so laid back. He's you know practically horizontal to Philippe, who's kind of he's kind of worried about his life and how he appears. He's trying to you know get back in the relationship game, um, but he's worried how people are going to react to him being a quadriplegic when you know he has to have everything done for him. You know, feeding, cleaning, everything's done for him. So he's worried about that, and it's just about how they bounce off each other, how they're actually good for each other. You know, it gets just you know just at the start of the film goes back to his uh, his I think his mum's house, and she basically kicks him out. And so if you don't know where you were for six months because they didn't tell them, he didn't tell them that he was in jail. So he's kicked out. He basically gets this job staying in this super fancy uh, mansion in the middle of Paris. Um, and it's actually really good for him because at his interview, he steals a Fabergé egg that Philippe would get from his wife every year. And then it's, you know, from that, he becomes a, a, a better person. And then his, his little brother's mm-hmm. getting involved in the wrong crowd and, you know, Driss, you know, st- you know, changes his ways and says, I don't want, you know, I don't want you doing that. You know, I went to jail, etc. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, but it, that sounds like a really kind of heartwarming story, but it's not a serious film. It's got serious moments, but it is one of the funniest films you will ever watch because it's just a clash of to- two totally different cultures. And you've got Omar Sy's character coming from like the poor projects of Paris, going to this big mansion, looking after this rich invalid, and it's just they're two totally different guys, but they bounce off each other so well. It's just it's just a hilarious film. It's it's incredibly well written. I don't know what I don't know what you think or want to add to it. Um, no, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting. When I was, I mean, I feel exactly the same you about having watching the film, and when I looked up, you know, how the film came about, 
Um, the first thing to say, you know, for those who don't know about this film, oh, it's shit, inspired yeah, it's a by story. a true story. <laughs> it's inspired by a true story, but what's interesting, it doesn't purport to be the actual story, if you see what I mean. The basic story is very similar, and at the end of the film, they do that thing where they show you footage of the real people, but um, they basically, what they've done is they've told a, a fictionalized story based on that idea. So no one's trying to say that on that day that exact thing happened. And it's an interesting way to approach true stories. We'll come back to The Damned United because that approached a true story in a slightly different way. It gave them the freedom to tell the story in a way that works to the film and is true to what happened to those guys. But because they just kind of change the names and don't say that it's exactly those people, it gives them the freedom to tell the story in a way that works for a film. So though some of the new scenes were created, like when he pours hot water on him to see if he can really feel yeah. it. Um, and giving him a Hitler moustache when he's shaving him. They invented that for the for the film. Um, but the but it, it's consistent with stuff they actually did together. Well, what the, you see what, what I mean? Guy said is that um, <coughs> okay, that didn't happen in terms of you know when he shaved shaved my beard, he wouldn't give me a Hitler moustache, but he would have done that. Um, yeah, it's the sort of thing he would have done, and it's like a lot of things yeah, he did do. Um, yeah. The other thing that was interesting about the way the guys the the, the guys that had done this they they'd been comedy filmmakers in France before. Um, they were inspired by this film and Philippe gave his permission for them to make the film of his story on condition that they made it a comedy. Right. Because, first of all, he said the most important thing about this was the laughs they had together. The fact that, despite the fact that he came from a shit background and Philippe is quadriplegic and his life has been messed up, they had so many laughs together and that's why it's a good story. So do it as a comedy. Yeah. Um, and And the guys went, well, great, we do comedies. We're already on the same page. And the real immigrant character who becomes the carer was called Abdel. Uh, and they changed that to Driss, uh, a Senegalese immigrant, instead of a Moroccan immigrant, which the real guy was. And the reason they did that is they'd worked with Omar Sy before. They knew how good yeah. he is. And while they're still developing the script, they went, he's the guy that's going to make this work. And they all agreed that, you know, rather than find someone who looks and sounds like the real guy but can't be like him and kind of get the story across, find someone who has that force of personality that get you know that would be like how the two guys relationship really was and Omar Sy gave them a lot of detail on his upbringing in the uh essentially the the, the Paris ghetto so that it would that stuff was realistic um and the interesting thing about that is first that they had to tone down the humor a little bit there was a lot of un PC humor between the two in real life which they didn't think would go across in in the film but other than that this the fact is no one pities each other. They just say, look, we, you know, try and make each other laugh, have a good laugh, you know, have a better life as a result of being together. And what's interesting about this film is that it plays on a very familiar Hollywood trope. Do you know what I mean? If it wasn't a true story, it would sound like such a cliche. You know, this rich uptight person who for various reasons needs not just to be looked after, but to give them a new lease of life. And someone from the wrong side of the tracks is the person to give it to them, especially a black character. That happens a lot in American films. In less skillful hands with, with, with sort of handling that wasn't as good as this, this could have been driving Miss Daisy with baguettes. And it isn't that because they have realistic characters. They're not interested in sentimentality. And it's feel good because it's um, it doesn't try to be a tearjerk. It doesn't try to be feel good. It just tries to give you a good story about two great characters. Um, and I, I thought that's what I loved about the film is that you end up feeling all the things that those sentimental Hollywood films want you to feel but they get there by just showing you what two people are like. And I thought that was what yeah, they did just was amazing. So well done. I think without giving any like the funniest lines or the funny lines of the film away, the, the best line to kind of describe the two characters is that when he goes to his job interview, um, they're talking about music 
and um, the Philippe is very much into his classical music, and he says, "Oh, that's not real music." You know, I'm talking about people like Berlioz, and uh, Dress goes, "Berlioz, I know Berlioz." And he goes, "Oh yeah, and, uh, do you really?" And he goes, "Yeah, uh, name someone who lives there because Berlioz is the name of a building in the projects in Paris." And uh-huh. you know, and then Philippe's like, you know, they, they, it's just it's stuff like that where they just they kind of uh, you know have a go at each other. Um, but no, it's I, I can't yeah. recommend this film enough. I, I don't want to give too much else away because the the best bit about this film is the the, the writing and the humor in it. Um, and it's from the off. It's from the off. Yeah, the I opening mean, the- scene is them driving in a car. Then the humor starts pretty much from there. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they just they, they just got two people to work together beautifully. Um, at, at the time, Francois Luzet, who plays Philippe, he was a much more established actor than Omar Sy, but he met with Omar Sy, and they, they both just agreed. Look, here's how it works: Philippe's the straight man, Driss is like the funny man, but Philippe, the straight man, loves what Omar Omar Sy says. He loves how Omar Sy, you know, works, and th- there's just so many brilliant bits where. The guy might be paraplegic, but he's just got this little smile on his face because he just loves the way that Omar Sy is like taking things off into kind of almost. He takes his perverse pleasure in the way Omar Sy just took, you know, tears up yeah. the rule book. Um, and it's just you know, look, you've probably seen films like this that were so sentimental and mawkish. All I can tell you is this is that idea done right. It's just spot on. So many great things happen in the film just just because they had uh, you know they did it the right way with the right people, and it's just. It's 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 really uplifting in all in all the best possible ways, and there's just so many good things, you know. Um, Earth, wind, and fire. Soundtrack um, is very good. Watch the film, and then you, yeah, you'll know but you'll also, know what we mean. Um, so Ludovico Einaudi's score. I think that's a. I think that's another important thing is that it's not only the the actual character clashes. You have the kind of juxtaposition of Cool and the Gang, um, and um, Earth, wind, and fire, and folk like that, and then you have. Ludovico Einaudi's, which is like a basically he's a he's a composer, which is very, it's very, very classical, classical. It's very piano based. It's all very kind of serious and dramatic. So you have that kind of contrast with the other. So there's 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 layers to this film. There's lots of different themes um, to it. Um, and yeah, go and watch it. Um, it's you know one of the best films I've ever seen. It's definitely my favorite foreign language film. Um, yeah, it's tremendous. I mean, it's. Um, it did incredibly well. It did about four hundred and thirty or five hundred million dollars around the world for a French film, and 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 it did that purely on the basis of I've heard this is really good. You know, it's not a franchise. It's not a superhero film. There's no one. These guys are quite famous in France, but not that famous outside France. And it just got huge following because when I've heard this is really good. Oh yes, it's really good, and it just did so well around All the right. world. Very good film, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, the reason we're doing it is this is a classic uh, and it's for you, the audience. Uh, stick this on your watch list if you haven't already seen it. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got, and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month's entry is for our international audience, as while this film is quite well known in the UK, it hasn't been seen that much outside these shores, perhaps because it's a very British story. We have a number of listeners outside the UK. This is for our listeners outside the UK who might not have seen it. Our hidden gem for episode 13 is the Brian Clough biopic, The Damned United. 
Now, James, as we said, uh, we're calling this a hidden gem because it's not very well known outside the UK. Um, it didn't actually make all its money back at the yeah. box office. Um, it, uh, it it did okay in the UK, but just got very limited release anywhere else. And even in the UK, I think it's um, it was something like the 12th or 15th biggest film in the UK that year. So I think it's kind of done okay out of word of mouth and people have heard of it and, and those people who've seen it have liked it. But it hasn't been seen by you know a super wide audience, despite being a yeah. A this was uh, this was back when Tom Hooper could direct films. <laughs> yeah, it's probably one well, of his I would best say films. This in the King's Speech, the rest of it's been pretty fucking shit. Um, but yeah, it's it follows the story of um, of Brian Clough, who is you know he's he's a, a managerial legend in terms of um, football, but probably second to Alex Ferguson in terms of British football managers. He um, he's yeah. a character. I think I think. Myself and yourself, we both have quite a soft spot for Brian Clough because he used to play for our team. Sunderland, he was a great goal scorer for us before he, he had to retire because of a knee injury. And this story just follows him. He became a very successful manager with um, Derby. And then this film follows his 44-day spell at Leeds. And then he, um, and then after Leeds, he um, takes the job of, is it Nottingham Forest? Uh, where, he right, became, yeah. th- where he became where he became Brian Clough, he became the he won the European Cup uh, in back to back seasons, which hasn't been done by an English club since. I don't think it's been has it been done by yeah, it's been done by Real Madrid, but that's Real Madrid compared to Nottingham Forest. So this was that he brought huge success to a small team like Nottingham Forest, but it follows the spell of Leeds because um, notoriously he hated Leeds. Everyone hated Leeds back in the sixties and seventies. Shout out uh, Bobby Stokoe's 1973 FA Cup winning team. Who who won the FA Cup in 1973? Uh, oh, I believe yeah. that was Sunderland against Leeds. Second against scummy Leeds. Um, Do you know the other story about Bob Stokoe and Leeds? No. Before he was Sunderland manager, I think he was a manager of somewhere like Bury, and he he, um, he was in his you know very start of his managerial career, and Bob Stokoe went to his grave swearing on his honour that Don Revy tried to bribe Stokoe to throw the game uh, in Leeds' favour. Okay, yeah, so basically, Brian Clough hated... Le- Le- Leeds are a dislike club. And the interesting thing about Brian Clough is, as, as James has covered, he was famous for taking two clubs that were absolutely nowhere and turning them into uh, English champions you know, among the best teams Derby in the country. Derby and Nottingham Forest, yeah. Um, they won, he won league titles and European uh, Cups, um, not with Derby, but with Nottingham yeah. Forest. Um, yeah. He won the league title with Derby and took them to the semi-finals of the European Cup, and he went one better with uh, with Forest, where they won the title, and then, as he said, won back-to-back uh, European Cups, which is the precursor to the Champions League for our younger listeners, and it's an absolutely extraordinary achievement. Um, he was widely regarded as the best manager England never had. He's certainly the best manager Sunderland Damn. never had. There was a, a, a rumour that goes around that Brian Clough would have got down on his hands and knees and crawled to Sunderland if we'd offered him the job. Um, I think the the reasons why it didn't happen are probably a combination of the lack of vision of our board at the time, timing not being quite there because I think he did well with you know when would we have had the opportunity when he wasn't managing one of the clubs he ended up being very successful with. Um, the other interesting thing about Ryan Clough, which the film covers, is he was a really outspoken character. He often fell out with his with his board. He fell out with other managers. He would say things like, "I'm not sure if I'm the best manager in the world, but I'm in the top one." Uh, Rome wasn't built in a day, but I wasn't on that particular job. Yeah, <laughs> um, and and people of my age who only saw sort of Brian Clough from the late seventies through through the eighties, his kind of peak period with Forest, wouldn't have seen him be, uh, at his what he's often known for by older sort of fans that 
from you know until about 1975, he was an absolute mainstay on television. He went on Parkinson. He was a, a pundit on on the sports shows all the time. He was always giving interviews. He was never off the telly. And after 1975, uh, you know, when he took the Forest job and you know, took, you know, went in a different way, he was still very high profile. But he didn't do as much talking about himself as he used to. And he, you know, he, he focused a lot more on just making Forrest a, a huge name. And, and the period that gets covered most in this film is where Brian Clough is always shooting his mouth off. And he put a lot of people's backs up. And he, he really broke the mold because who cares about football chairman? We care about managers. We care about players. We care about successful teams. And there were a lot of establishment figures in the game who hated Clough because he told them all to fuck themselves and did things his own way. Um, and it's obviously a fascinating thing for a film to cover. We just talked about what a great manager he is. So it's quite fascinating, I think. I can understand why they want to do the story about the time where he only managed Leeds for 44 days, did really badly and got the sack. Because that's the story, isn't it? That's the interesting bit. How could someone so successful do so badly in this yeah, job? Yeah, I think right? there's, there's also more to the story in that sense. Because when he was managing, <coughs> um, was it Derby? No, it was Hartlepool. Hartlepool played um, yeah. played Leeds in the Cup and Leeds. No, no, that was Derby. Was no, Derby. There's a, no, there's a, there's a section at Hartlepool as well. Um, where yeah. okay, fair uh, Brian Clough gets his um, misses to give him the two nicest wine glass because Don Revy was a successful manager. He played terrible football and he was a prick. But to anyone in Leeds, he's a legend, you know, and he, he won everything he could win, um, well, apart from the European Cup. But he was a very successful manager and he was, you know, he was kind of like that ilk of Alex Ferguson back in the day. So small Hartlepool, I mean, they were small Hartlepool they? playing Leeds in the Cup. Um, he gets his wife to give him the two nicest glasses and a, for the bottle of wine at the end of the match. And uh, Don Revy doesn't even shake Brian Clough's hand. He doesn't even acknowledge the other manager's existence. Um, and from that day, Brian Clough took it personally and made it his goal to absolutely batter Leeds at every given opportunity. And did that with Derby County. He took Derby, who, you know, have just today, a couple of days ago, sorry, managed to say, uh, save themselves from relegation to League One. Back in the day, they were a huge club, and that's because of Brian Clough. He won the league with them, got, got them to European Cup semi-finals. They, they were huge yeah. while he was their manager, and they were nowhere for the yeah. rest of their history, um, to be quite And honest. then he, he, t- he took a person against Don Rowe. He made it his goal to you know, badmouth Don Revy, because rightly so, Don Revy was a fucking prick. And I'm glad Little Sunderland beat Don Revy's leads in the 1973 FA Cup final because it's the least um, the least embarrassing thing that um, probably could have happened to um, Don Revy. He was a prick. Um, but this film follows him. And then the, the strangest thing about Brian Clough um, taking the leads job is that he'd spent his entire time slagging off Leeds for the horrible style of football that players like Billy Bremner would play and Don Revy's Leeds. And then he mm-hmm. takes the job after doing nothing but slagging them off. So he was, he was succeeding Don Revy. Um, and, you know, obviously... Yeah, and he, he walked into such a hostile yeah, well, environment. Yeah, he's walking he? into an environment where he slagged off all these players saying, no, you don't play nice football, we're going to play nice football. Because Brian Clough did try and play more attractive football than Leeds. Obviously ended disastrously. Um, I don't know who Leeds got as their manager after it. Um I think it was Jimmy Armfield, or eventually it was Jimmy Armfield. I mean, Leeds were not as successful again for a very long time. Um, and, you know, possibly because there were a few clubs that happened to where they'd had one person in charge, like Revy, who'd kind of built the club up. Um, and then when, you know, whoever else whoever else takes over is probably on a hiding to yeah. nothing. You so know? it just follows that. Um, they were in the it wilderness for a long great time. great performances from Brian Clough and Timothy Swall plays his assistant coach, who I can't remember the name of. Uh, Peter Taylor, yeah, it's it's Michael Sheen doing one of his extraordinary transformational performances, where while he's on screen, you just completely believe that he's that guy. But how can he look exactly like Brian Clough and Tony Blair and Kenneth Williams 
and Chris Tarrant. And, I don't even know uh, how that happens. Did, he just he has this Frost ability to well, totally embody characters. David Frost. David Frost, yeah, yeah, yeah. He just has this amazing ability to uh, to do that. Uh, Colin Meaney is excellent as Don Revy. I mean, he does a superb job of, of, of bringing Don Revy to life. Timothy Spall is very good. He's not really anything like the real Peter Taylor, but you happen to be watching Rocketman at the moment, mate, and I think it's probably similar to um, Jamie Bell playing Bernie Taupin. It's not really that important for him to be exactly like that yeah. guy. Do you know what I mean? Because he's not... Um, but you have to you have to get the main guy right. You know, in that case, Elton John. In this case, Brian Clough. And that's what Michael yeah. Sheen's there um, for. Very good film. Very good performances. I think the reason it's not as big in outside of the UK is that it's a very quintessentially British film. It's a British manager. It's a very mm-hmm. British story. It's very it's very grey and rainy. This film. It's um, there's not apart from when they uh, they're in Mallorca for about two minutes. It's very kind of you know dull kind of cinematography it's um and i think it's just it's obviously a british manager you know it, it wouldn't even appeal to people in say france and stuff like that where yeah i mean it still got um, um yeah it got good reviews in places like america um roger ebert who's obviously you know one of the most you know dead now but one of the foremost film critics he gave it a good review and said this is worth a watch you know but as you say it's unless you have a, a as a you know an interest in the the game and the name um, it, it's it's not something that people immediately sort out, but I think it's I think it's a good enough film to be entertaining for anyone. Uh, it's written by Peter Morgan, who uh, he's he's worked with Michael Sheen a number of times. Uh, uh, Michael Sheen's played Tony Blair three times in, for, in different things for Peter Morgan. He also did Fro- Frost Nixon that Peter Morgan wrote. Um, uh, he played Tony Blair in The Queen with Helen Mirren. So Peter Morgan seems to specialise in these kind of stories behind the, the headlines, doesn't mm-hmm. he, of true life characters. Um but yeah, another film that uh, I would recommend everyone listen, uh, not listen, everyone listening, uh, watch. It's um, back when Tom Hooper would direct films that were good rather than just doing musicals because Les Miserables was shit and Cats was awful. But this is back when Tom Hooper was, you know, directing films that were interesting stories to discuss, you know, The King's Speech and obviously mm-hmm. this. Um, I mean... As as a film, as as uh, as like how well done is it? How good are the performances? How well written is it? It's it's definitely very good. One thing to note is that it has been criticised for being um, quite a big departure from the true facts of what happened. Um, it doesn't spoil. I mean, it's it's still it works very well as a film, but it's very factually loose. Yeah. Um, I think if 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 I'm honest, I think the real life story of. Um, Brian Clough and Don Revy. I, I don't think his hatred of, of Don Revy was as all-consuming and to the exclusion of all others as people say it was. Um, in fact, Brian Clough was almost equally kind of critical of people like Matt Busby, the Liverpool legend, and, and Bertie Mee, the, the Arsenal Matt manager Busby at the time. Matt Busby legend. Uh, did I say, yeah, sorry. I meant Bill Shankly. So Bill Shankly, Matt Busby, he, he, he slagged off a lot of other high-profile managers at the time. Um while he did obviously put a lot of backs up at, Le- at Leeds, he put a lot of he put everyone's back up, and I don't think the film goes into that quite as much. And there are a few things that just didn't happen the way it happened in the film. For example, there's a bit in the film where Derby are knocked out because Leeds have gone out to injure their whole team. Um, while Derby, while the, the match happened and Leeds did injure a lot of Derby players, and Leeds were a very cynical and nasty team. Actually, Clough was knocked out. Derby were knocked out of uh, of the European Cup because of cheating and a, and a crooked referee. And his interview afterwards, he just refused to speak to the Italian press because he said, you're all a bunch of bloody cheats. Um, but the the film kind of streamlines it and just makes it all about Clough yeah. and Revy. Do you know what I mean? Um, and there's a, there's a big interview, which is very famous, where Brian Clough and Don Revy talk to each other and slag each other off. Um, 
Clough was not ambushed in the way that it, it's described in the film. Um, and uh, he didn't accuse Revy of snubbing him and not shaking his hand. I mean, that incident probably happened, and the film covers it quite well. Did Revy um, snub him, or did he just not know who Brian Clough was? It, it's, it's, it's actually quite cleverly done in the film, so I can't really blame, you know, say that not happened. But I think they made it a lot more personal in the film between Clough and Revy than, than it actually yeah. was. But I still think you get a very good idea of how outspoken Clough was. And I, I think the interesting thing about it is that when he's winning, everyone's with him. And when he's losing, you know, all of the stuff he said to slag, you know, the slag people off and put people's backs off kind of comes back to haunt him. And that much, I think, is very well done in the film. So it's just one of those things where enjoy the film. Don't take it as the the, the gospel truth of what actually happened. Yeah. You see what I mean? The only criticism I would have about that what's actually shown in the film is I thought it would have been better to show more of what made Clough different as a manager and why his why his methods worked, why he was different, why his teams were different. And you don't get that that much, you know, the way you do in, you know, Moneyball, the baseball film. They actually show yeah. you how they, you know, why they did things differently. But I think for what it for what it is and for what it shows on screen, it's a very entertaining film. Um, it's one of those fictional true life stories. And I think that's why I thought it was interesting to compare it to Into Shabla. Because Into Shabla was able to basically set out its store from the beginning, at beginning and saying, this isn't the 100% true story. Um, it's harder to do that in someone as public and high profile as, uh, uh, as, as Brian Clough and Leeds, because there were people there who came out when the book that this film is based on, and then when the film came out and said it didn't happen like that. So you just kind of have to take some of the events with a pinch of salt, but it's still a very enjoyable film. Yeah, I would agree. So that's The Damned United. That's our hidden gem. I think it's definitely one for people to seek out if they haven't seen it uh, and enjoy um, some very good performances and uh, a, a, a very interesting window into um, a bygone age of, of English football. Now for our One That Got Away feature, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month is about one of the true giants of 20th century cinema, and one of the great historical novels that has so far eluded filmmakers. Our One That Got Away for episode 13 is David Lean's Nostromo. So, before we get too far into this, was this completely... Um, like blank to you, James. Did you heard anything about this? You know, this book and this attempt to adapt this film, or or or, uh, or had you heard a little bit about it before uh, you started doing blank. it? Had no idea what was going on. Okay, and uh, what did you find? You know, when you had a when you had a little look around, it we seemed like there was a lot of trials and tribulations that to try and get yeah. out this. I mean, was falling out with everyone about it. <clears throat> yeah. It's a very. It, it tells you a lot about the personality. Yeah, of the guy, he was falling it? out with Spielberg. Apparently, he was falling out with fucking anyone and everyone. So, uh... yeah, and I think I think the, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that, which you know I think to do with timing and the state he was personally right, okay. in. So to to give the audience and give everyone the background, uh, David Lean is obviously a legendary film director. He started out as an editor, including for the great Michael Powell. And when he took up directing, he made an immediate impact in the 1940s with British films like In Which We Serve, Blythe Spirit, and Brief Encounter. Um, he has a specific era then where he does some great classic British black and white movies, uh, including two of the best uh, Charles Dickens adaptations, Oliver Twist and Great Expectations. Uh, there was a bit of controversy in the mid-40s with his version of uh, Oliver Twist because Alec Guinness's version of Fagin was accused of anti-Semitism with some merit. 
I would say. Um, and that seems to be um, a uh, a bit of a recurring theme of Alec Guinness in uh, uh, in David Lean's films. So through the 1950s, he's generally regarded as a very good filmmaker. He's been Oscar nominated in several of those films like Brief Encounter are, you know, stone cold classics. But his film moves into like a new space in 1957 when he directs Bridge on the River Kwai, which is an epic set in World War II. So it's recent history. He starts making films in color. It won seven Oscars, including Best Film and Best Director for Lean himself. He follows that up six years later with the epic Lawrence of Arabia, which took ages to prepare and do. And again, it won a ton of Oscars, including Best Film and Best Director, widely regarded one of the best films of all time. Just to top it off, he makes Dr. Zhivago a couple of years later, which is a massive hit and wins five Oscars. And it's not seen as good as his last two films. Um, He's only nominated for Best Director. But he's just at this whole new level where David Lean is doing these very big, very epic films that almost no one else can do. Um, He's so highly regarded as a result of this that the British Academy Award for Best Director is named after David Lean. Now, similar to Kubrick in a way, his film career moves into these later stages. The gaps between his films get longer and longer. Um, I think there is a difference, though, in that Kubrick did sort of keep fairly busy. When when Kubrick hit this kind of career peak in the 60s, he still managed to do like seven or eight films before he kind of more or less went into retirement. Um, but after Dr. Zhivago, where David Lean's apparently at his height, he only directs two more films, neither of which are regarded as highly as his, his previous output. Nostromo was going to be his swan song. He started looking into directing this in the late 80s. He was approaching 80 years old himself. Um, so this was going to be his last film. This was going to be his last great masterpiece. Um, um, and so, and the, the book is called Nostromo, and it's by Joseph Conrad, a Polish immigrant who became one of Britain's greatest writers. Uh, he lived from 1857 to 1924. Before he got into writing, at a very eventful life. He was in the Merchant Navy. He was in the Congo uh, on on a sort of a boat during events that inspired Heart of Darkness. Um, He was involved in gun running and political freedom fighting. He's probably the nearest thing Britain has to Ernest Hemingway in that he's a writer whose life was as as adventurous as his books. In terms of films, he's had work adapted for the screen by people like Alfred Hitchcock, Richard Brooks, Orson Welles, um, John Milius, who we discussed on Hidden Gems a while back, and most famously Francis Ford Coppola-based Apocalypse Now on Heart of Darkness. Nostromo is seen as perhaps um, uh, Conrad's greatest novel, but it's very complex and difficult to film. Someone once did a very loose adaptation of it in the silent era, and there was a TV miniseries, but the definitive film adaptation has never been done. So it falls to David Lean to do this. A bit of film nerd trivia. Um, the, the name of the book is Nostromo, mm-hmm. James. The name of the fictional South American city uh, in which it's based is Sulaco. Do either of those names ring bells? Nostromo rings a bell. So Nostromo was the spaceship in the first Alien film, and Sulaco was the spaceship in the second film, Aliens. Right. So there's a little Easter egg there. You know, Joseph Conrad has kind of inspired filmmakers in a number of odd ways. So Nostromo tells the story of a, a fictional South American country, but it's heavily based on Colombia, where your granddad was born, funnily enough. Uh, granddad knows a thing or two about Joseph Conrad, actually. And it's about a powerful British-born businessman who controls silver mining in the country. And he's so rich and so powerful that he's almost the kingmaker politically of the country. He's got the influence and he's got the money that whoever he supports gets to be in power. Now, he supports a bit sort of a kind of benevolent dictator who's seen as the best of a bad bunch because he's brought stability to the country. However, there's lots of people who want to take over. The military want to have a coup. There are revolutionaries in the country. And they want the silver from his silver mine because that would give them the money to basically form a huge army and take over the country. 
Um, Gould is worried about this. He's worried about the country being destroyed by upheaval. There's been years of this kind of violence before. Um, there's, you know, warlords and dictators, would-be dictators all over the shop trying to take over the country. So he gets an Italian sailor whose nickname is Nostromo to help him smuggle the silver out of Sulaco and off to a, an island offshore where it can't be taken by anyone. The revolution breaks out anyway. And as well as smuggling the silver out of the way, Nostromo becomes a hero of preventing a coup d'etat and tyranny taking the country back over. So he actually saves the day, fights off the bad guys. But after the, after all of this, Nostromo is resentful because despite all these exploits, he's still kind of seen as a low class, you know, guy from, you know, who works on ships. Um, and he doesn't get elevated in society as he'd hoped. He was just someone to do other people's dirty work. All the, you know, all the big businessmen and all the generals and all the presidents are still way above him and he's nowhere. But he knows where the hidden silver is and he's, you know, the only one he knows for it and he's going to go and find it. Um, so he's trying to get that silver for himself. Everyone else is trying to get that silver. It becomes a, a battle of greed between people to try and find this. And there's a deadly struggle. People are trying to kill each other and get the silver. The whole thing is kind of a, um, obviously it tells you something about the, the upheaval in South America, but it's also about greed and human nature. And Nostromo has a bit of a double meaning in the story. It's the Italian na um, naval merchant Navy term for shipmate or bosun. Um, which you got from working on ships, but it also means our man in Italian, Nostro Omo. So it reflects that various power plays in the country seem as their guy to do their dirty work. Um, so it's a very complex story, but it's the kind of epic that the guy who did Lawrence of Arabia could turn into a great yeah. film, right? If you're asked, if the question is, would you like David Lean to do one more masterpiece based on, you know, this great novel? The answer is definitely yes. Um, uh, and the interesting thing with uh, with Dave Lean is when you think about him with this amazing track record as this director of epics, he only made three of them. Where's that Where's that last great epic film? And the answer is David Lean lost almost 20 years after Dr. Zhivago where he wasn't really making films. And by the time he comes to make Nostromo, he's old, his health is failing him. So are his usual collaborators. The screenwriter Robert Bolt, who normally worked with, had a stroke and was struggling to work. Um and he's kind of a man out of time. I mean, his, he was a little bit old-fashioned in his techniques in the 60s, but it, it was okay because he was making historical epics. You know, by the time it comes to the 80s, there's so many different people, you know, who are great at making films now, like Steven Spielberg, but he clashes with Spielberg, who had different ideas, even though Spielberg only wanted to help David yeah. Lean, right? Spielberg idolized David Lean, but coming in as producer, he thought he could help get the film made. But he was going, you could try this, you could try that. I think the story works better like this. And David Lean was like, who the hell are you to talk to me? Didn't even know who Spielberg was. He's really out of touch right. by this time. The golden period, I think, for um, uh, uh, David Lean to make this film would have been 15 years earlier in the early right. 70s. Um, but his part of his problem was that he'd... First of all, it took him years and years to make each film. It was absolutely exhausting, you know, to completely recreate the Russian Revolution, to completely recreate, you know, how World War One panned out in Arabia for Lawrence of Arabia. It took him years and years to make these films. Um, and the other problem is he'd set such high standards that if he did anything that wasn't a big epic like that, people sort of went, oh, this isn't very good. He did a film called Ryan's Daughter in 1970, which isn't a bad right. film, right? But it's it's about a love triangle in rural Ireland. And people are just looking at it going, that's not very epic, is it? And David Lean's trying to do his big kind of widescreen shots of Ireland and everything, but a really small story. So he's kind of locked into it. He's got to do these big films, right? right? Um, and the problem with that is he, he's, that he, he's struggling to find a film that's going to do that. You know, how do you follow Lawrence of Arabia, right? How do you follow 
bridge over the river Kwai. So he's he kind of I don't know got the film director's equivalent of writer's block. He does Ryan's Daughter in 1970. It doesn't get as good reviews as he'd hoped. He spends kind of ten years kind of not making a film, not even trying to make a film, kind of lost in the wilderness. Um, and then he does a couple of other things. He tries to do a remake of Mutiny on the Bounty, but then pulls out because he needs to do it. He needs a remake of Mutiny on the Bounty. It gets made by someone else. It's nothing special. He does a passage to India, which is kind of a nice, you know, one of those costume dramas that people were doing in the eighties, like uh, a room with a view, but it's not David lean. It's not a David lean epic. Um, I was trying to think of an analogy that would kind of work for like a younger audience, James. Here's me trying to get down with the kids. But if you can imagine Kendrick Lamar having done the body of work that he's done, where he's just out on his own, he's almost created his own genre of music. If he started knocking out hip hop albums that are very good, but just sound like everyone else, people would be disappointed. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. I get where you're coming from. Um, he's unique. And then he starts doing stuff that doesn't live up to his own almost impossible standards, yeah. you know? Um, but I mean, in, in the end, you know, he tries to do this in the late eighties, everyone that he's working with is really old and out, you know, kind of out of touch. He still manages to get to the point of making the film, but in the early nineties, aged 83, he sadly succumbs to cancer and the, you know, the film, which had been scheduled to be made, uh, is, you know, is, is scrapped. Um, but if he, if he'd sort of got back on the horse in the early seventies after, um, uh, after Ryan's daughter, then we could have had, you know, the the ultimate David Lean masterpiece. All the actors that would have loved to have worked him in, in the 70s, you know, Alec Guinness is still around, uh, Richard Burton, Paul Schofield, Alan Bates, Michael Caine, Albert Finney, all still at their peak. Peter O'Toole could have come back for another crack at the Oscar. He perhaps should have won for Lawrence of Arabia. You know, it's the absolute heyday of great actors and movie stars with Italian heritage. So you could have young Robert De Niro as Nostromo. Now you've got your American audience queuing up. Um, it, it's just that would have been the time to make this perfect film because he would still have been, you know, younger and fitter. The people he was working with would be younger and fitter. He'd still be more in touch with the people making films. That's when it could have happened. And and by he's trying to do this in, you know, 1989, 1990, he had no chance of getting that done because the films that he made took so much effort, years of work, and he's just not going to get that done when he's very old and, and frail, to be honest, and really should have retired. Um so it really is a lost masterpiece. Um, if he'd done this in the 70s with all that momentum behind him, it would have happened, and it could have been you know, a film to rival or even better Lawrence of Arabia. Um, uh, you know, and, and it would have been really fascinating, I think, to see all that in South America because you know, these South American historical epics, it would have been a completely different you know, angle. You know? it, would have been, it would have looked different. It would have felt different. Um, so to try and imagine what this would, like, would, would have been like, start with Bridge Over the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia, Imagine him giving another complex epic of that caliber. For the look and feel of South America, what you need to see is how the landscape, the towns and the people look, how that presents itself on screen. Um, good examples of that would be like, uh, there's two Werner, Hots, Werner Herzog films you can look up, Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, Wrath of God. Um, although the era and subject matter are different, there's the mission, which says you, you know, t- gives you the best possible look at like South American landscape and visuals and an Ennio Morricone score. We could look at Sorcerer, which is set in a similar location. You get an idea of the um, the tough South American terrain where all this is happening. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a it's very much a missed opportunity and a lost masterpiece. Some of the times we do these ones that got away, and it's a great film you'd love to have seen by someone who's done lots of other films that you you've seen that are like that. This feels like almost um, David Lean's you know list of great movies or great epics is seven is is only seventy five percent and this would have been the missing twenty five percent. It feels like a big miss, 
this film could have been, you know, the absolute kind of cap on an already great career. Yeah. No, it sounds interesting. It sounds like a good story to start with. Um, it's very complex. Something that I've had to do a job on kind of distilling the story down. Nostromo is a really dense book to read. But, you know, Revolution, Double Crossing, Silver, you know, Love and Hate and all of those things, it's all there. Very good. Um, it's kind of it's, it's weird this feature because this feature is always like, oh, I kind of want to watch that now, and it's like, yeah, yeah. and you can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I'd, I recommend a couple of kind of South American based historical epics like The Mission or Fitzcarraldo and A Gear Wrath of God that would give you an idea of what a, a historical epic would look like at that time. And uh, anyone who hasn't seen Bridge on the River Kwai uh, should definitely watch that right. for a start. We close the first rule of the episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we relax our usual calm and balanced approach to our film discussions and rant at the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom. Whether they call it a remake, a reboot, a reimagining, we don't like it and we want it to stop. There are, of course, examples of good remakes when they were justified and well done. This feature does not discuss those films. What we look at here are remakes that disrespected the memory of a film they should have left well alone. This month's feature ties into our classic for the episode, and it's the perfect example of taking a film they got right the first time and then getting it wrong in every respect. The remake Hate Watch for episode 13 is The Upside. So, James, what did you think oh, of The Upside? I watched about 10 minutes of it and I went, this is this is the exact same as Intershabla, isn't it? It's just you haven't got as good a cast this time. So I'm, gonna, I'm yeah, not going to watch I mean, this. I, it was, it was I, a carbon copy. It's just the same... It's the same film, except it's been done for an audience who can't be arsed watching a film in French because they can't read subtitles quick enough. So it's yeah, that's the, that's the only reason. It's fucking stupid. It was just the point. Now, I get people that have probably watched it and found it enjoyable, and that's why we did the um, the feature on Intershell because I'd I'd much rather people watch this film because it was the original and it would be it's funnier. It's got more charismatic leads. It's just a better film. I watched the, I, I say ten minutes. I watched about the first half an hour and I thought I can't be arsed watching the rest of this because it's the same film as Intershell. I'm not going to enjoy it as much because it's not Intershell. That's basically it. Yeah, I mean, I watched it all the way through and I thought it was very interesting that they they basically tried to do the same film, um, but they just fall into all the kind of Hollywood sentimentality traps. Um, so while they try to do exactly the, the same film, they don't actually do any of the things that made the original film yeah, work. Exactly. See what I mean? I mean, it's, it, it was, it was in the works for a long time. I mean, the, the Weinstein company picked up Antouchable for worldwide distribution outside France, uh, which they have a tendency to do. So Harvey Weinstein had nothing to do with the making of this film, but his film company was very successful at picking up films like this and distributing them worldwide. At the same time, they negotiated rights for an English language remake. Uh, and I figure... You know what? Um, while Philippe has all, already got all the money he needs, that Abdel guy, it doesn't hurt. You know, if someone gives him, you know, a bit of money to to sort out his retirement. Do you know what I mean? Um, but there's no other reason really to justify the making of this film. Um, the The history of it getting made is quite interesting. They knocked about with different people looking to make it. At one point, Paul Feig was attached to direct, write and direct. Um, they looked at Chris Rock, Idris Elba, or Jamie Foxx to play Dell. Um, at one point it could have been Tom Shadyak directing you might not know that name but he's the man who brought us Ace Ventura and Patch Adams uh, and if he did it he would have had Chris Tucker oh. as Dell so let's just say we got off lightly with the end result that actually happened the guy that did direct is a guy called Neil Berger he's done a few films I like The Illusionist with Edward Norton is really good and uh, Limitless I quite like um, but he hasn't got much track record in comedy 
Um, and that's the whole point here, is that the one thing they didn't do like the original film is they've not made a comedy by any stretch. Uh, and that's why it doesn't, well, one of the reasons it doesn't work, because that you know from the first like step of making the film, the tone is different. It's not got the same kind of anarchic fuck you tone, except at, at, at a few points. I think the problem with that is that uh, Brian Cranston, who's playing Philippe, the, the paralyzed guy, he can do comedy. We all know he can do comedy, but he's playing the straight guy. So you can't rely on him for all the comedy. Otherwise, you haven't got the same relationship. And while Kevin Hart's, I actually think Kevin Hart's okay in this film, but he's trying to be more serious than he normally is. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Whereas Omar Sy just said, no, 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 I know what I'm going to do here. I'm going to be larger than life. I'm going to be the character that the original guy was. And he basically gave a performance that's completely true to what he can do. Whereas all the time you feel like Kevin Hart is trying to be serious. And it's like, well, that's the complete opposite of what this film needs. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I don't mind Kevin Hart, but I find his comedy quite annoying. I find him quite whiny. I find him quite high pitched. I don't find him, I don't find American humor as funny as. British humor. I'm not saying I'm a, a big connoisseur of French humor, but you know, I don't I don't enjoy <coughs> Kevin Hart's material. And when I saw he was the lead, I thought for fuck's sake, I thought Brian Cranston was a good choice of casting. Um, yeah, Brian. The, the the thing is right. What they don't do is because they're not getting the tone right for the original film. And even if they did get it right, you'd still be going, well, that's just the original film. Why did they bother? The some of the bits I love. We mentioned this in the in the other one about. Uh, Francois Luzet's performance is he's got this kind of little tight-lipped smile in that any minute now where Marseille is going to completely yeah. crack him up and as much as like he comes from this kind of very stuffy aristocratic background he's just loving how much Marseille is you know is you know basically screwing everything up and Brian Cranston doesn't do that um, there's a number of things. I, I, I made a little list because I thought I might as well make notes for the, for the book. They they give in to too many of your standard Hollywood story right. tropes. He interviews for the job by accident. Uh, he accidentally goes for the wrong job, and it's just like we don't need that. We you don't need that. You got all the other, all the other different cuts of the other candidates, which doesn't work as well as uh, as what they did in the original film. Brian Cranston offers him the job straight away, which again doesn't need to happen. It has a number of kind of big speeches saying how they feel about everything because that's what you do in America. And they didn't need that in the original. They just got it across in the way the characters, and you know, and instead of what happens in the original film, Kevin Hart gets fired and then comes back. And you don't need it. They throw in a lot of fictional tropes that are just needed. Um, the Yvonne character in Nicole Kidman, she's much more of a bad cop than I thought she was in the original. Um, has no life other than working for Brian Cranston. I don't think you needed that either. Um, and they, they just make changes you don't need to. Brian Cranston's much more of a self-made millionaire type in this. He takes over failing companies, and it's just not, not necessary. I liked it better. The original Philippe was an aristocrat and had always had a hugely privileged life because however much Brian Cranston's built his own life, he's still far more privileged than a guy who's lived in the ghetto all his life. And in the original film, they just say, look, you come from where you come from, I come from where I come from. I'm fucked because of this, you're fucked because of that. We better just get on with it, do you know? And they don't. They throw in all of these standard Hollywood tropes, which just don't work nearly as well. Yeah. I think what worked about the first one was that you didn't really need to know a lot about, you know, Philippe's life before he was a quadriplegic. It's about that yeah. story in the moment. There's not really much need for backstory and what they do. It was just about the actual characters themselves, and I think that's what worked. Yeah, yeah. I just I couldn't be asked for this film. I, to be honest, I don't actually hate the film itself. I'm sure for people who've never seen Into Shabba, this film is a very good um, 
I mean, it, it's not too bad. It's re- it's really you know all right. Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston really give it their best, and there are some good moments. But it's nowhere it's near. It's just a film that it's, it's it's catering to lazy audiences who don't want to watch French films. Unfortunately, yeah. because that's what American that, film studios like to do. They take ideas because they're not creative enough to think, think of their own, and then you know, Americanize yeah. it. Yep, yeah, in a nutshell. I mean, I mean, the other thing is, is that you know, you often say, well, you know, here's the remake. You know, it, it's it it. it you know, they've made a remake. You can watch either film. But the difference here is um, this film can't stand on its own. The only reason you've got a relatively big budget production with A-list actors playing it is because the original film was a massive hit and won awards. If this was a brand new story about two characters like this without that background, this doesn't get a big cinema release. This is made for cable. This is like a you know one of those kind of American Hallmark Channel movies. Yeah. Do you know? That only they only get to make this film because Into Shabal exists, so it's you know it doesn't stand on its own as a film at all. You don't say, oh, well, you can watch this film and just pretend Into Shabal didn't happen. No, because if you did that, you'd be going, why the hell is Brian Cranston and Kevin Hart and Nicole Kidman in a film like this? Because it's just they turn everything back down into a totally standard, you know, hallmark story. Um. The thing is, I think it's trying very hard not to be a typical Hollywood sentimental story. I think they've actually tried to. And this is this is as good as Hollywood gets in doing this story without being sentimental. If you see what I mean, yeah. Um, there there are one or two nice low key moments. Kevin Hart pulls up the server in the hot dog shop for not talking to Brian Cranston's character directly. I thought that was very good. It just it goes against the fundamental nature of Hollywood films to not be the sentimental, you know, sentimental. So it just never feels natural. Uh, Kevin Hart is nowhere near the level of Omar Sy. You know, Kevin Hart's yeah, okay, but right. Omar Sy is completely on another level as an actor. Um, you know, it, it, he, he can't do this as well as Omar Sy did in the same way that I would never imagine Kevin Hart could do something like Lupin the way Omar Sy yeah, has. Kevin Hart's you know? very much a kind of, not slapstick, but kind of like silly comedy kind of guy. Does like a Rebel. Yeah, I've, I've seen some Kevin Hart. There. Yeah, I've seen some Kevin Hart films I quite like, but, you know, it's he can't pull this off. And Brian Cranston's terrific, but again, you know, there's, there's a couple of trailers and videos of what a great time Brian and Kevin had making the film where they have a laugh together. Don't watch them because it'll only piss you off more that you don't get that in the film. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Um, look, it's it's all, it's not the worst film we've ever done on this, but it's it's the absolute epitome of redundant Didn't you know doubt. filmmaking. It, there's just no reason to watch it. Get used to subtitles. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? We're going to take an intermission now. Sorry for interrupting the flow. The second reel of the podcast is available to download now, and we hope you will rejoin us soon for the exciting conclusion of this month's episode. When you do, we'll be taking on the big conversation. This month, we're going to talk about five films that changed our lives. That's all for the first reel of this month's episode of the Double Reel Film Podcast. The episode was recorded and edited with the help of Anchor FM, Audacity, and Zencaster. Anything that sounded good was down to them, and anything that sounded crap was down to us. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin McLeod. We'll give you a full set of credits at the end of reel two of the episode, including info on the films and topics we discussed look forward to joining you for another helping of nerdy chat in just a minute see you on the other side woody's round up he's the very best he's the rudest tootinest cowboy in the wild wild west woody's round up